Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello, my name is Paula Shilliday. I'm a fourth year PhD student here at Queen's University Belfast in the School of Law and in the Mitchell Institute. Today I'm talking to Professor Heather Conway, one of our professors here in the School of Law at Queen's and author of The Law and the Dead. We're going to be looking at her work on the intersections between the COVID-19 pandemic and the laws on death and funerals during what has been a very unusual time for us all. Lovely to speak with you, Heather. Perhaps you could begin by introducing yourself and telling me a little bit about your research. Good morning, Paula. I'm a professor of property law and death studies here in the law school at Queen's University. A lot of my research looks at the legal rights and obligations that surround the treatment of the dead and really in the context of burial and cremation. The sorts of legal issues that arise there, the disputes that can occur within families, how the law regulates aspects of death and burial, the social rituals around it, uh, and how basically we, we deal with our dead. And of course, as you said, Paula, in the current pandemic, that's an issue that is coming more and more to the fore on a daily basis. Death surrounds us. It it confronts us every day that we live during the pandemic. We're constantly reminded by the number of COVID-19 infections, the deaths surrounding that, this being a global event. And it's the first time that on a global scale that we've had death brought into such a sharp, real and everyday focus. And as part of my research, I've been looking, as you said, at the impact that the emergency restrictions that we're living with now during the pandemic are having on funerals and how we deal with our dead. Okay, thanks, Heather. A basic feature of societies right across the world is the respectful treatment of the dead. However, during what has now been almost a year, quite unbelievably, the global pandemic has changed the way that we deal with death. One of the most striking changes has been in relation to the law and funerals and the restrictions that have been imposed. Could you tell me something about how and why the law has moved from what has traditionally been a hands-off approach to funerals? Absolutely, Paula. If, If we think about it generally, the law has always had basic rules on how we we deal with the dead and that comes from two different perspectives there's this universal notion of respect for the dead that we treat the dead with respect and that's embedded in you know every society every culture and the law recognizes and reflects that as a basic right as well or a basic entitlement counterbalancing that we have the public health narrative Dead bodies, for want of a better expression, are a potential contaminant. They are a source of decay. So the law has always had this idea and and rules around public health, this need for bodies to be buried or cremated without reasonable delay from a public health, from a sanitation perspective. So we've always had law being involved in some level or having basic principles around the treatment of the dead. If you think about it, respect for the dead and, and public health, the two dominant narratives, they sit side by side. They're like a delicately balanced set of skills and they're the two things, the two core values that, that the law always looks to in, in 
its treatment of the dead. But what we have now, the balance is very much shifted towards public health. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And a lot of the emergency measures that governments have passed during this pandemic are really focusing one thing, the threat of virus spread and protection of public health. Now, how does that impact on funerals? Well, it's interesting because the public health element of funerals was always based on this idea of the corpse as a potential site of decay. The decaying bodies posed a health threat and therefore, from a sanitation perspective, you had to bury or cremate your dead without unreasonable delay. You see some of that in the Coronavirus Act that was passed in March last year in the UK. There were provisions within that act about the storage of bodies, the transport of bodies. Um, we saw horrific stories in the press at the time about temporary mortuaries being set aside, and we're seeing that again now with a high number of deaths in England to deal with the dead so that bodies can be put in storage as death rates mounted. And that's really looking at the sanitary aspect of death and dying. And, of course, allowing funerals to go ahead so that we can bury or cremate our dead without unreasonable delay. But when we think of the rules around funerals, the public health narrative to me is a very, very different one. It's not around the corpse as a potential source of decay, of contamination. It's this idea that the dead could act as a highly localized site at a funeral for bringing the living together. And if the living congregate during a pandemic, we know what happens. There is the potential for virus spread. So it's a public health narrative that sees the corpse as, as an inadvertent vector for disease transmission because the living will gather at a funeral to say goodbye to the dead. And when they do that, there's the potential for the virus spreading. So in a way, funerals are potential super spreader events if they continued in their usual form. If you allowed large number of people to gather at funerals, you would have this possibility of virus transmission. And there have been stories about people going to funerals, both here and elsewhere, and of course, catching coronavirus in the back of it. So it's a health, public health narrative, but it is a very, very different one. It is a threat to physical health by virtue of coronavirus spread and therefore people contracting COVID-19 by virtue of attending funerals. And that's really what's driving the legislation, the legal intervention in funerals now. Thanks, Heather. You're, you're talking there about the public health justification to restrictions. Do you think that this justification is reasonable under the circumstances? Um, reasonable under the circumstances... I have very mixed views on that, Paula. I think we're seeing a lot of emergency legislation being passed at the minute under the pandemic, and it's all driven by this idea of public health. And it's it's necessary. I mean, we're seeing the horror stories in the news every day. We're seeing subsequent waves of the pandemic. We're seeing high number of deaths, high number of infections. My only concern about it, it is a public health narrative, but it is a very myopic and selective public health narrative at the moment. There is a laser-like focus on controlling the spread of COVID-19. Um, we all understand the reasons behind that as things currently stand. But public health to me is a much broader concept. We're focusing solely here on physical health and physical health caused by the potential spread or the threat to physical health, I should say, caused by the potential spread of coronavirus and people contracting COVID-19. We've all seen stories on the news recently about how, you know, if we step outside the funeral context that we're seeing debates recently around how the health service isn't performing the way it should perform in terms of people missing appointments for cancer diagnosis and cancer treatments being stopped and emergency operations being cancelled. So in that sense, you know, you're seeing this laser-like focus on coronavirus 
distorting what public health actually is. In the funeral context, if you think about it, well, physical health and banning people from attending funerals, large numbers of gatherings at funerals, speaks to that same public health idea. It's all about stopping the spread of coronavirus. So we can see why it's necessary in that perspective, because that's our dominant legal narrative at the minute. It's our dominant political narrative. It's, it's influencing how we live every aspect of our lives right now. But in the funeral context, and in coronavirus more generally, in the public health dimension, public health is not just about physical health and physical health linked to COVID-19. It's about well-being. It's about mental health. It's about emotional wellness as part of the narrative. And to me, whenever you think about funerals, yes, the regulations may be necessary, the rules around limiting your numbers at funerals, having social distancing rules at funerals, because that's really the two key measures that we're seeing now around funerals. A cap on numbers, and anybody who does go to a funeral must obey strict social distancing requirements throughout. Now, that aligns with the public health narrative and preventing the spread of coronavirus and people contracting COVID-19 on the back of that. But where does that say about the emotional, the mental health and well-being narrative that should be part of public health and that is such a vital part of the funeral itself? It's not just about the physical element to me, it's about the emotional element that's attached to funerals. And there's a very strong sense in which, to me, the public health narrative around coronavirus is focusing too much on the physical aspect of it. I completely understand why. I think the restrictions are necessary on the basis of that. They're probably reasonable on the basis of that, but I think there's a much broader picture here that we're not taking on board. Okay, that's, that's all very interesting. I'll come back to, to that point in a moment, Heather, about the emotional and the mental health impact. But just something that, that came into my head as you're talking there, because we are speaking in the legal context here of what's happening, is there perhaps an argument that funerals and the right to attend them could be seen as a basic human right? I think there is that argument, Paula, and I'm, I'm not a human rights law expert, but when we think about it, the right to a dignified and lawful funeral is such a basic and fundamental social right that, that I think it doesn't need to be articulated in any human rights incident. We take it for granted that everyone has, for want of a better expression, the right to a dignified send-off. Case law, look at the old common law cases decided centuries ago. They talked about every individual has the right to a Christian burial. Now, that's set in the 17th, 18th century context, and it has mutated now to something that's more along the lines of, you know, the right to a dignified and decent send-off, whether that's through burial or cremation. So I think it is a fundamental and basic right of every individual to be treated on death in that particular manner. So yes, I think there is an argument that the funeral is a basic human right, even though it's not something, as far as I'm aware, that you will see articulated in a human rights instrument. I think it's just something that we all take for granted. In terms of attending funeral, yes, there is jurisprudence from the European courts to suggest that there is a legitimate right on the part of the family to attend a funeral. There is this idea in human rights jurisprudence that the execution of funeral rights falls within, say, the scope of Article 8.1, that the family of a deceased have a legitimate interest in attending the funeral of a loved one. 
to have custody of the body to participate in a funeral ceremony. We have ECHR jurisprudence on that. We have some statements in our domestic courts on that as well. This notion of the family of the deceased having some sort of right or some sort of legitimate interest in the funeral ceremony and to attend and to participate in that. So, yes, there is. I, I think you could also perhaps bring in Article 9.1, the right to freedom of religion in terms of what is and is not permissible in terms of, of funerals. So I, I do think there is, and I, again, I, I preface that by saying that I'm not a, an expert in human rights law, but certainly there are provisions that would seem to cut across and influence that. The, the other thing that I should say in the human rights dimension, and it's important to bear in mind, is to remember that funerals have not been banned here. I think if the government had, had said that no one can attend funerals or we're banning funerals completely in the context of a public health pandemic and, a, and an emergency, then that would have raised very, very significant human rights issues. The important thing for me is to bear in mind that funerals can still go ahead. There are curbs and restrictions on how they can go ahead. You may argue that you know rights are being impacted on under Article 8.1 and Article 9.1 of the Convention, but remember that Articles 8.2 and 9.2 allow state interference with those rights on the basis of things like public health in the interests of protection of society. I'm, I'm not quoting the direct words of those provisions, but in the public interest, in the interests of the protection of health. So I think the balancing exercise might say that at the minute, yes, you could say we're looking at human rights issues here and they do cut across this area, but in the context of a pandemic that perhaps, yes, it's legitimate to have some interference with those basic rights, but to remember that funerals are still going ahead. And to me, that's an important concession to bear in mind there. Thanks for that, Heather. Um, just turning now to what you already mentioned earlier in, in our chat, can we look at the deeply personal effects of the restrictions on those who have lost loved ones to either COVID-related or other illnesses during the pandemic? Funerals and social traditions, such as the wake, and especially so here in Northern Ireland and across the island of Ireland, are very important aspects of saying goodbye to the deceased. They're really a critical part of families' grieving processes. What do you consider to be the implications for grief of the restrictions in the numbers of those who can attend funerals and the, the very strict social distancing measures that everyone has had to adhere to? I think, Paula, that there will be all sorts of implications from this that we are only getting a sense of now and that we will see moving forward. If we think about what's happening at funerals, and, and you touched on the point completely when you asked me the question there, these restrictions apply not just to COVID deaths, they apply to every single funeral these days, whether it was a virus-related death or a non-virus-related death, all funerals are subject to them at the moment. And you see restrictions on numbers attending, very strict restrictions around that. Um, at, at the moment, I think it's 25 here in Northern Ireland. I think it's 30 in England. Scotland may only allow a maximum of 20. And within that, the rules around funerals have basically said that, you know, there's only certain people can be permitted to attend, members of the same household, close family members, potentially close friends if one of those two groups cannot go. So you have that restriction. And then hand in hand with that, as you say, we have the very strict social distancing requirements. So all mourners are expected to stand apart from each other at all times during the funeral, if they're from different households. They're not supposed to sit together. 
they're not supposed to shake hands or to hug each other or to engage in those basic gestures of comfort that we take for granted that are part of our natural human instincts at funerals. We're not supposed to do that anymore. We're not supposed to have a wake before or after the funeral. We're not supposed to gather and congregate. How is that impacting on funerals? Oh, when we think about what does a funeral do, you know, it is not just something that marks the deceased's life and passing. There are so many components to the funeral. I know you've looked at this in your own research, Paula. They are ways of people saying goodbye to the dead. There may be a religious or cultural narrative or element to the funeral. That's very much the case still here in Northern Ireland and across, you know, the island of Ireland as a whole. They bring family and friends of the deceased together. They are, they're public events in a way. They give the family of the deceased a, a legitimate setting in which to express their grief. They allow people to share memories around the deceased. They allow people to shake hands and express sympathy to those who have been bereaved. They're a vehicle for expressing emotion. They're a vehicle for expressing support. They're deeply embedded parts of our socio-cultural psyche. You know, we think, especially I think here in the Northern Ireland context, that the deceased family will naturally attend the funeral and support each other. Friendship circles will attend the funeral. Members of the community think it's a social obligation to go to the funeral of someone that they know or to the funeral of someone who is a close friend of theirs and who has lost a relative. We think of all those things. We take them as part and parcel. But there's a huge literature on funerals as a vehicle for expressing grief. And again, I, I'm no expert in that field. I've simply touched upon it in my own research and from talking to people who work within the bereavement sector and from funeral directors, there are various stages in the grief process and the funeral as an event is a key part in the whole grief process in allowing you to draw support. If you're someone who's been bereaved, you draw support from your family circle, you draw support from your friendship circle, and you draw support from your community circle at the funeral. And you have it's, it's this one occasion in which it's okay, it's acceptable for you to show your feelings, to allow your feelings for your loss to take over, to be expressed in, in this very, very public setting. And what we're doing now, we're limiting the numbers who can go to funerals and we're saying that those who do go aren't supposed to sit together, aren't supposed to hug each other, aren't supposed to shake hands. Um, there was an instance in, in England a few months ago where um, I don't know if you saw it on the news, it was a crematorium and it was, I think it was the father who had died. And of course, the mother is sitting on her own at the front of, of the crematorium and her two sons are sitting socially distanced from her because that's the way the chairs are set out, minimum of two meters at all times. The mother burst into tears, understandably, during the, the ceremony and her two sons went over to put their arms around her and a member of the crematorium staff ran over and tried to physically separate them. And that, that created a huge outcry at the time. Um, as an overzealous application of the rules and because it's something that runs contrary to every fundamental instinct that we have as human beings. So that, that's a very long way of saying that, yes, we're distorting the whole social fabric of funerals, we're distorting the emotional fabric of funerals. And that to me is one of the key things here. This is the first time that the law has done this. You know, we've always had legal rules around, say, the bureaucratic elements of death. You must have a death certificate. We've had rules around the sanitary aspects of funerals for want of a better expression. You know, the rules on the minimum depth of a grave, the rules on where you can and cannot build a crematorium. The law has happily 
set parameters for that, but has never interfered in this idea of how many people can go to a funeral. What you can and cannot do in terms of those basic emotional gestures that we take as, as part and parcel of the funeral itself and that are ingrained in us and ingrained in everyone, I think. So, yes, I think there's a huge impact on the funeral. And certainly from people who I've spoken to who work in bereavement charities, and, and if you look at all those websites now at the moment, there's a lot of literature in terms of how the bereaved are trying to cope at the minute with the rules around funerals. And another way of looking at it is when you think about what's happening at the moment, people who are ill are dying in hospital or hospices or in care homes on their own because of the strict rules, again, imposed by the pandemic on how many people can visit at a time. So we have this awful narrative of people die alone and separated from their families. And now we get to the funeral on the back of that and we have another layer of separation because the dead are separated from the living, but the living are now separated from each other. They're physically separated within the confines of the funeral and they're perhaps geographically separated as well with all the different travel restrictions that are applying. Not everyone can go to a funeral these days. Not everyone's allowed to attend. Um, so that's a very long way of saying that I think there are huge implications of this moving forward, I think we will only start to see, or we're only starting to see the outworkings of this in terms of the impact on grieving and the longer term impact that that is going to have on mental health and how people start to process their grief having lost loved ones in a pandemic. Yeah, it's all, it's all quite incredible, Heather. Thanks for, for drawing our attention to some of the, the really deep issues. Just as we come towards the end here, looking back over the past 11 months, is there anything that you think could or should have been done differently or perhaps in a way that might have been more helpful to the bereaved? I'll use the old saying, Paula, that it's, it's very easy to be wise with hindsight. Yes, I do. I think it's interesting that I've seen Matt Hancock being interviewed a few times and he has said that, you know, one of the things that they regret as a government are the restrictions on funerals. Some things that I, I think should have been done differently. Um, well, numbers caps were imposed on funerals and way back at the start of the pandemic, you know, that was as low as 10, a maximum of 10 people. That That's a frighteningly small number. And I know from conversations with funeral directors that it's a difficult time for families anyway when someone dies. Whenever you're trying to limit those numbers to 10 people who can attend a funeral, I mean, there, there's a massive pressure point and a, a huge potential bone of contention within families themselves, who goes and who doesn't go. And I understand that there have been quite a few conflicts within families in the back of that and, and trying to decide who can attend and who can't. Now, I know that we've seen a huge uptake in live streaming of funerals, and that has helped people to attend in the virtual sense. But the, the initial numbers cap to me, in some places, 10 maximum was too low. Some local authorities went much further than that and said, we're not going to allow anyone to attend funerals. And I think that was entirely wrong. We have an example here in Northern Ireland, the city of Belfast crematorium, and I'm not criticizing the decision in any way. I understand why it was taken. A way back at the start of the pandemic said that it would not allow anyone to attend funerals. Um, and I, I understand why, you know, the crematorium is small. It was very, very difficult to implement social distancing. Could you clean out? And, and disinfect the, 
the crematorium chapel within you know a tight turnaround time as you move one family out and the next family in it's not just exclusive to here. Some other local authorities in England said, no, we won't allow anyone to attend at the height of the pandemic. To me, I think that was completely wrong. So I think the numbers cap should have been bigger. I'm not saying, you know, hundreds of people. I'm saying, you know, 25 at the moment here in Northern Ireland. That's, that's a much better number to me than 10. 30 in England, yeah, it's a much better number. And it gives, it gives just a little bit more it pays just a little bit more attention to the needs of the bereaved and, and to allowing people to go to funerals and, and trusting people to behave in an appropriate way or in a, in a semi-disciplined way. I mean, we could never curb all our natural instincts, but I think a slight increase in the numbers for funerals would have been an appropriate thing to do. The other thing that I think is that the government should be mindful moving forwards. We're seeing a lot of debate now about the mental health impact of the pandemic. And, you know, there's always this idea in the literature that, you know, the subsequent waves of the pandemic are never, of any pandemic, are never just physical health. They're the mental health implications of it. And I do genuinely think that with funerals, there is going to be a tsunami of mental health issues around this because our normal practices of gathering together, drawing support, drawing comfort, we can't do that now because of emergency restrictions that are being imposed on funerals. I think the outworkings of that are going to be seen moving forward. I, I really do. So I think making sure that the appropriate supports are in place to deal with that. I think looking ahead, you know, again, if, if we're watching the economic priorities around the pandemic, we're seeing it in terms of the furlough scheme, financial support. We're seeing investment in the NHS to curb virus transmission to to fund things like PPE as we've been moving forward. We're seeing the debate now around the mental health impacts of making sure those services are funded, but making sure that there is bereavement support. And I'm not talking about financial support here. I'm talking about support in terms of investment in, in those services that offer support for bereaved people from a well-being, from an emotional perspective. So I think moving forward that that's something proper investment in those services that should be high up on a list of government priorities. Because I think we will see the mental health tsunami of this moving forward. Thanks for that, Heather. And just, just on a final note, do you think that funerals and social traditions around death will change because of the pandemic? That is interesting, Paula. It's very, very hard to say. I mean, I suspect there are so many things that we took for granted in life a year ago, and it, it's, as you said at the start, it's very, very hard to believe that we are, you know, close to a year into this now. I would like to think that funerals are one of our, you know, socio-cultural traditions that we will go back to embracing as they were before, because they're such an important part of us as individuals, us as a community, and those traditions have been around for, for longer than we care to remember. I, I think funerals will go back to what they used to be moving forward. But that's just that's just a speculation on, on my part. I think it may be some time. We've all been warned that social distancing is going to be with us, even once the vaccine rolls out, that we're, we're going to be in this constant loop of social distancing for another while. So I think it will be a while before we can go back to embracing our old rituals. But I think we will take comfort in going back and doing that. I think some things may be here to stay. You know. The live streaming of funerals. I mean, that was happening pre-pandemic. And I think that that may help in situations now where 
you know, it's more acceptable to do that for people who cannot travel to a funeral for all sorts of reasons, um, whether they're too ill to attend someone's funeral, whether, you know, they just can't make a, a long journey if they're living in a country elsewhere. So that is giving a sense of comfort to people who cannot be physically present, this idea that we can live stream. So I think something like that will take off more, will, will be more acceptable and will be utilized more. And I think it has its benefits. Other things that might be interesting to see moving forward. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the whole idea of direct cremation. No, no. No. Um, this was something that, that has been around for a while, but certainly it was made popular. I can't remember how long ago David Bowie died. But if we think back to David Bowie's death, he said that he wasn't having a funeral. He was just going to be cremated with no one there. Mm-hmm. So there was this idea of direct cremation that sprung up in the back of that, whereby someone would just be cremated, very, very basic, no family, no ceremony. It would just be a case of the person would be taken to the crematorium, the cremation would take place, and that would basically be it. Now, there were mixed views on that. Some people thought, well, if that's what you choose to do, then that's absolutely fine, and I'm very respectful of that. A lot of people thought it was a little bit um, cold, in, for want of a better expression. And there's this perennial debate, you know, is a funeral about the living or is it about the dead? And of course, if someone said, well, I just want a direct cremation, I don't want you any, I don't want any of my family of my loved ones to be there. That was their choice. But at the same time, when we think about what funerals are, they're an outlet. <laughs> they're a way of a family coming together and supporting each other. And a lot of families found that very difficult to respect to someone's wish, this idea that, oh, my mother or father wanted a direct cremation and didn't want us there. We would like to be there because we would feel it's beneficial. We want to say goodbye properly to our mum or dad. So direct cremation. There was also this narrative that direct cremation was a lot cheaper, you know, Mm -hmm. because you didn't have to go to as much expense. Um, So direct cremation was something that was becoming more and more popular. And certainly I know from bereavement experts, they were quite concerned about that because they thought, well, again, going back to the idea of a funeral as as a grief outlet, that this was a problem somewhere along the lines. Um, Whether direct cremation continues to be as popular now. I'm not sure. That will be interesting to see if, if, yeah, because it's different when someone chooses direct cremation and doesn't want family there, but we're in a system now, emergency rules, that prevent people from being there. We're not allowed to go. And whether that makes us feel that direct cremation is less palatable, that we associate it in some way with something linked to the pandemic and we want to roll back from that, I'm not sure. I saw figures the other day that suggest that a lot of cremations during lockdown have been direct, well, not a lot, but a significant enough percentage have been direct cremations. So that's, that's interesting because whenever you think about it, moving forward to the end of the pandemic, will we see direct cremation being as popular? Now, I have to say it's not as popular in Northern Ireland as it has been in, in England and in other places. We'll see. I, I'm not yeah. sure. But it'll be interesting well. to see the outworkings of this as we move through. Yes. Heather, this has been a very topical, very informative conversation. Thanks very much for joining us today to talk about a subject which is incredibly important to every one of us as we move forward into what is going to be another uncertain year. Thank you very much, Paula. Thank you for taking the time today to go through this with me. Um, yes, and, and let's just hope that there is an end in sight and that end is, is soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Heather. Thank you.